across the board, the respondents noted that, that I talked to noted that um, civil affairs and, and the military more generally needs all the training it can get about how civilian agencies work, particularly in steady state environments. And, and also the philosophy and the mindset of NGOs, because they're, you know, what motivates them is different than national security often. And so understanding kind of where, you know, how they see the world uh, is really important. But that also begs the question of whether we civilians are showing up to serve as resources. Hi, and welcome to the 1CA podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. We're joined today by Ryan McCannell, who is the author of an issue paper submitted to the Civil Affairs Association. It's entitled, The Evolution of Civil Affairs and Interagency Partnerships in Sub-Saharan Africa. Ryan, thanks a lot for being on the 1CA podcast. Absolutely, John. Thanks. You're currently serving as the senior advisor for the U.S. Agency for International Development, uh, USAID, or other people just call it AID in the Bureau for Africa in Washington, D.C. From 2016 to July 2018, you were the USAID advisor to the U.S. Army War College Peacekeeping and Stability Operations Institute, otherwise called uh, PKSOI. That's in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And um, how long have you been at USAID? Well, first, let me, let me update you. Uh, since, since November, I actually have jumped ship in the Africa Bureau and I'm now serving as the acting office director for our global office of conflict management and mitigation. Wow. Congratulations. Um, yeah. Thank you. And you know, um, I'm the third USAID person that I know you've had on the, the, the podcast. And I think that says something about how closely aligned our, our two communities really are. I want to thank you. Uh, on behalf of my colleagues and me uh, for, for your great interest in the organization. I would just say, um, just quickly for people who don't know very much about USAID, although the work we do is pretty different, um, the organizational the sort of logic is pretty similar in that we're a matrixed organization. We have, in the same way that the DOD has uh, its combatant commands that are regionally aligned, we have regional bureaus, so does the State Department. And then we also have a number of functional bureaus. And so I've joined um, the same one uh, that is uh, that where both Diana Parzik and Kevin Melton, who were some of your previous interviewees, uh, are now part of, which is called the Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance Bureau. And so I'm now in one of the sister offices of those two individuals who spoke already with you. Oh, that's great. Now, why the shift from, um, from Bureau for Africa to uh, what you're doing now? The main reason is because I've been an Africa specialist for most of my career, and this was an opportunity to learn something different. And then I think also, after three years in Carlisle, one as a, as a student and two as a teacher, it uh, you know it opened my eyes to the great amount of work that we could be doing across the civil military divide, and that's really what motivated me to write the paper. It clearly, it looks like the last couple of years of working in Carlisle at uh, PKSOI was the, would you say that's the strongest connection most recently that you've had to civil affairs? Yeah, it's always been an indirect connection. And, and you know, unlike I think a lot of folks on that have been on the podcast to date, I don't have any military experience. The closest that I have um, been involved uh, is with on the planning side when, uh, when AFRICOM, the Africa Command, was being stood up, uh, and then over the, the course of the last few years, I've also been really my my another aspect of organizational logic being similar. We have the equivalent of a military occupational specialty among 
USAID employees. And so my, we call them backstops for some reason. I don't know why. Okay. Mine is, uh, mine is, is called crisis stabilization and governance. And so when the, uh, a few years ago, when there was a lot of talk and interest about, uh, setting up an institute for the military support to, to governance. Yeah. Um, down in Fort Bragg, that was something that caught a lot of our attention because as a democracy and governance officer, basically at USAID, you know, we wanted to, we wanted to sort of understand what it is that civil affairs was planning to do at that time. And, um, more, more recently, yeah, a lot of my students and friends at the War College, uh, you know, the civil affairs folks know how to find us. <laughs> uh, good. USAID folks. And, uh, and so it's a result, what's, what's kind of weird is that many of the current sort of kernels, uh, in the, uh, civil affairs, uh, structure were either in my class or some of my students, which is weird. <laughs> Very nice. But, but, but pretty cool. Yeah. It's a, it gets to be a pretty small network, especially it keep running into people over and over at a couple of these, the, the 3Ds, right? And that's great because, you know people who have been there before, you can call, even if they've been retired. People are more than willing to share from their experiences. That's great. Well, Ryan, I wanted to dive into uh, some of the topics of your paper. It's, again, entitled The Evolution of Civil Affairs and Interagency Partnerships in Sub-Saharan Africa. And so let's sort of set the stage for the listeners, if we can, because people from the military may be used to AFRICOM or Army Africa and its area of operations, does the Aid Bureau for Africa cover the entire continent, or does it overlap with the, the DOD side? You're, you're touching on an important point uh, of the coherence or lack thereof across the civil and military uh, perspective. So the short answer is no. Uh, the way that we divide the Africa region up or the African continent up is similar to that of the State Department. In fact, it's identical. Um, where we consider sub-Saharan Africa, which is to say all of the countries that are south of the sort of northernmost tier that runs from Morocco to Egypt, all of those are part of our Africa Bureau. Um, and then along the top, the, the, all, the, the countries from Morocco to Egypt are part of the Middle East Bureau uh, for, and, and in our case, we call it the Middle East and North Africa Bureau. And so that automatically creates uh, some some complexity <laughs> when trying to get any conversation going with AFRICOM because we have to involve two of our bureaus and so generally just the State Department. So more phone calls, more meetings, more people to clear up any confusion about who's going to be where and who's going to fund it and what they're going to do. That's right. Okay. Well, I've also been hearing a lot about, uh, from the military side of things, the Horn of Africa, the Lake Chad Basin, um, a lot of violent extremist organizations out there, a lot of DOD activity for combating terrorism. And I know AID has some work out there as well. What would you say are hot spots for aid in African nations? Yeah, well, I'm glad you, you, you asked. I think um, one thing to keep in mind is that when you're dealing with Africa, and anybody uh, who's listening uh, will understand this, there are generally two parallel conversations that are always going on, and sometimes they talk to each other, but more, more often they don't. There's a security conversation that really, of course, focuses on the military, but also law enforcement. And then there's a whole development and governance kind of conversation that is where USAID and, you know, to some extent, the State Department really focus, certainly a lot of the NGOs that are uh, active in the region. And so often you, what's, what's, what's frustrating about working in the region is that sometimes those conversations are going on in parallel without reference to each other. And so the two areas that you mentioned, Horn of Africa and Lake Chad Basin, are two obvious places where 
both of those are aligning pretty closely uh, in terms of uh, uh, the, the concerns and threats that we have. And of course, on the USAID side, we also break it down a little bit more in terms of long-term development, which is where most of our offices abroad, our missions, as we call them, you know, focus. And then all of the special things uh, that we have, like the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance and the Office of Transition Initiatives. Increasingly, we've had a lot more engagement by those special uh, elements of USAID's capabilities that are focused more on addressing, you know, humanitarian challenge, like short-term humanitarian emergency relief kind of challenges, and also political transitions, particularly in those two regions, but also increasingly now um, across the Sahel. So when you mentioned before I was a senior advisor when I came back from Carlisle, I was actually working on uh, the area um, uh, on the border between, okay, focused from Washington on the, the policy issues surrounding the areas um, where Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso all come together because the violent extremist threat is really, you know, starting to migrate south. Yeah. And so that's another area where we're trying to figure out, you know, how does development have a contribution in terms of addressing the grievances that people might feel um, that might lead them to, a, you know, to make the decision to, I guess, become violent extremists um, right. or support, you know, support violent extremists. Yeah, that's incredibly complicated and nothing that one country is going to solve alone. It's And it's tough for outside countries, in my experience, to uh, fund enough <laughs> to give uh, yeah. locals, you know, enough uh, faith in their government and providing governance at certain levels. Well, well I'll, just to turn it a little bit also toward, I think, where we're going to go, one of the places of convergence that actually where things kind of work relatively well in our big, vast government is at the country team level, which is where the ambassador of a, uh, you know, of the U.S. US uh, embassy um, convenes, you know, the senior defense uh, official and the, you know, defense attache right. alongside U the USAID personnel, alongside like the law enforcement folks, and tries to develop some coherence. And that's pretty easy. I, I can't say it's easy, but it's simple. It's more, it, it's, it's, it's easier done at a country level than it is at any other level in our system. Yeah. Um, they're the people on the ground. They understand the, the flow of, of the culture and society. And it, it is a team. I mean, in my experience and what I've heard from fellow colleagues at aid, um, you know, colleagues of yours, they've said that that system has become stronger over the years from experience. Well, just as important, though, John, the authorities are clear, right? The, pre the, the president of the United States gives the, amb the ambassador the power to represent the president right. and, and a specific coordination role, whereas that's not necessarily clear kind of at a regional level. When you sort of draw back and, and are trying to do things across countries' borders, it, it gets more complicated. And then at a, a sort of a, a, a sort of macro level, you know, it raises the question, you know, the combatant commander, you know, are they not, you know, sort of in – in more of a, of a command and control kind of perspective um, than we might otherwise be. So, okay. yeah. So your paper talks about the evolution of this partnership, and I want to start at what could be described as the beginning, 2007, when AFRICOM stood up. So it was established then, and the, your paper talks about the early days of CA Civil Affairs for, Forces working under AFRICOM. And I took it as being described as uh, lacking stra strategic coherence, overlapping activities, a lack of cultural awareness, a general blasé attitude to coordination. What is that accurate? And what would you say has been learned that may have led to the lackluster start to CA forces in Africa? Sure. So I want to preface this by saying that there is a happy ending, right? <laughs> yeah. So I don't want to come across. And also, the, 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 like people are wondering, where on earth did this 
dude get all this information? So what, one, one thing that I did, the reason that the, I think what maybe part of the reason that this, this, this paper um, got the attention that it did was that I actually went out and interviewed about 40 people, um, a third of them actually civil affairs, members of the civil affairs community, and the others, um, you know, a, a, a like number from USAID and then the rest kind of from State Department and from uh, at the NGO community. Yeah. Um, to talk That's not normal. Relationship. Well, for, for issue papers that come into the CA Association, I think the, the human subjects approach that you took first-person accounts is fantastic. So I highly recommend going to Carlisle and being given two years to, like, you know, think big thoughts <laughs> and do this because that's exactly how I get it done. And, um, uh, I mean, it was, a, it was a great learning opportunity for me. The point that I would make is that uh, in addition to just the individuals, there were also some studies that were done at the time. It's, it's kind of hard to roll back to 2007 and remember kind of where we were as a country and a national security if, um, you know, community at that time. But this was right, um, you know, right as the, as the uh, surge was, was starting up in, um, you know, in Iraq and, and Afghanistan, there, were a, there was a lot of skepticism about our national security strategy writ large. And a lot of concern within the Africa region with the announcement that AFRICOM was going to, you know, be created from our host country counterparts and then within, frankly, within the civilian um, agency community about what that might look like. And so, um, so I, and I, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of the folks who first hit the ground at that stage and there's a, there's a, to some extent, by the way, the, the, you know, the Horn of Africa was a little bit of an outlier because the um, combined joint task force for the Horn of Africa predated the creation of, uh, of AFRICOM. It was, it was set up, uh, right after 9-11, if I, I believe, or maybe even earlier than that. Uh, and is now, you know, you know, the focus of it is now in Djibouti. At the time, it was, it was offshore for a while. Um, but in any case, there, for most of the rest of the African continent, there wasn't, there had not been a whole lot of civil military engagement, uh, in the same way that we were used to. And, and so there were, um, from the military side, you know, people were, were drawing from their lessons learned in Iraq and Afghanistan, a place where the military, our, our military really owned the battle space and coming into a place, um, where that is definitely not the case across most of the Africa region. And so there was, you know, in places, you know, where there are active conflict, there's little to no consideration of long-term development, whereas in the Africa region, most of the environments that people were dropped into, even though they might be conflict-affected, they were, you know, what we would call kind of phase zero or steady-state environments. So it really, um, you know, the the, the sort of uh, operational environment was, was unexpectedly different, I think, for a lot of um, the, the civil affairs teams that first came in. And then there there was also a different relationship between the other uh, agencies and the NGOs that were on the ground. You know, as an old Africa hand, I um, represent one of the, you know, the, the community. We, we can be very um, um, snobby about having, you know, owning the space, you know, in the Africa region, um, because to work in Africa is a, is a labor of love. And a lot of folks, um, you know, take, take, are very skeptical of newcomers and then they come in. Right. And so I think the, the sort of combination of all those things and just some rookie mistakes, you know, bad, you know, a few bad decisions, uh, tactical decisions or, you know, a sense that, you know, think, things that could be really serious and tractable problems could just be solved by a quick, a quick fix, you know, and that's very rarely the case in Africa. That's right. Um, yeah, it led to a folklore 
um, is what I discovered, you know, where everybody had their favorite story of civil affairs, you know, not doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. But it was, but, but nowadays you, you, you know, you hear something quite different and that's why I wanted to, to do this paper in the first place. That's wonderful. So let's talk about some of that evolution, um, over a decade of AFRICOM. So you do so through the lens of .milpf, .milpfp, and let's discuss a few of those areas, starting with organization. Could you describe three organizational solutions to improving the relationship between CA and interagency partners? Yeah. So, you know, the issue is really about ensuring better connectivity from one deployment to another because um, military deployments are generally much shorter than those of state or USAID foreign service officers and you know, obviously Peace Corps and NGOs and others that are out there for years. And so the analogy that I use in the paper is that civil affairs teams are running a relay race while everybody else is in a marathon. And if you put yourself in the position of the civil, uh, sorry, the, the civilian partners, um, you know, it's kind of a catch-22 because either you can ignore the CA teams and, uh, or civil affairs teams, excuse me, and bear the risks and missed opportunities that you could have otherwise, you know, had from not having collaborated, or you can invest in the relationships. But then suddenly your contacts get redeployed and they, and they have to start over from square one. So several of the organizational fixes that I suggested had to do with the handover aspect. So one lesson learned, and again, these are all things that I gleaned from the interviews, um, is that where there is an enduring presence, so the civil military support elements and special operations forces liaison elements, the SMCs and SOFLEs, um, those really pay off in terms of, you know, providing a platform for these longer term relationships. You know, it's easier to do on the active duty side, um, but reserve uh, civil affairs planners are, seem to be getting the message and are trying to ensure some persistent presence. That's being supported a lot by the um, theater uh, civil affairs planning teams in, at, you know, at AFRICOM and some of the other um, uh, geographic combat commands. But the challenge is actually not often within the civil affairs community, but rather the commanders that they serve under, which who may not understand why the enduring presence matters. And, you know, to some extent, it matters more over the long run uh, to have that kind of enduring presence than any particular short-term project or mission that might happen under a commander's watch. And so it's it's sometimes hard to, to sort of make that case. Um, but that's something that we civilians could ho hopefully help with. The second one... A big complaint that I heard was how um, civil affairs, uh, sorry, civil information management team systems can be disjointed and don't talk to each other across time and space. And everyone has their favorite story of different software that changed or, you know, where two systems are incompatible or um, all that. It's also apparently difficult to track the chain of custody for civil affairs funded projects and infrastructure across deployments. And so, um, you know, those are some things where if there were clear mandates and, guide, and, and guidelines, uh, it would fix the problems or at least make them easier, but it requires some leadership at the proponent and the KCOM level and at the supporting component, uh, component commands like USARAF and South Africa. Um, and then thirdly, the CA teams um, could just embrace the fact that they're in a relay race. And so success may not be getting, you know, the sort of uh, typical red to green. You know, you come in and say the person behind you failed, and so, uh, you know, you're going to bring it to a new level. But rather to realize that, you know, it might be three or four deployments in front of you where, you know, success, so, so to speak, is achieved. And as long as you're moving in that go overall goal, you're, you're accomplishing something for the organization. Yeah. You also touched on training in the paper. And so yeah. I wanted to ask you, what do you find regarding training – about whether it has evolved to have a positive, a neutral, or negative influence 
on those relationships between CA and Unified Action Partners? The impression that I got was that to the extent that civilian counterparts are able to engage and willing to engage during pre-deployment training, whether that be at the schoolhouse in Fort Bragg or during validation exercises, it can be a positive influence. And across the board, the respondents noted that, that I talked to noted that um, civil affairs and, and the military more generally needs all the training it can get about how civilian agencies work, particularly in steady state environments. And, and also the philosophy and the mindset of NGOs, because they're, you know, what motivates them is different than national security often. And so understanding kind of where, where you know, how they see the world uh, is really important. But that also begs the question of whether we civilians are showing up to serve as resources. And I, um, you know, Diana Parzik, who works for our Office of Civil Military Coordination, was one of your previous speakers. She and I have been talking a lot um, about how to develop some ideas about how USAID could show up more holistically, both um, not only before, you know, during the pre-deployment training, but also handing folks over to our, you know, these, we have these mission civil military coordinators that she was talking about, right. who are you know, mission-based folks, and then in, and then also do post-deployment, you know, after after folks redeploy to understand, how, you know, basically so that we can all learn lessons about with that, you know, do we give you the right information, you know, what what came up that you didn't expect, whatever. Come on out to the 2018 Civil Affairs Symposium, entitled Optimizing Civil Affairs, which will be held at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, on Friday, November 2nd to Sunday, November 4th. Whether for special operations or conventional forces, the active or reserved CA soldier or Marine must be at the ready as the Joint Force, Army, or Marine Command subject matter expert on civil military operations. This requires continuous investment in an innovative and adaptive force, well-networked in planning and operational relationships, and persistently engaged and aligned regionally to facilitate political military goals and objectives. Given the new crossroads CA finds itself a century since its modern inception, policy and force stakeholders must re-examine the culture for civil affairs. How can the regiment optimize its force going forward? To register for the CA Symposium, go to civilaffairsassoc.org forward slash events. Lodging is available on post on a first-come, first-served basis. For more information, go to ihg.com forward slash army hotels. The symposium will be part of the Civil Affairs Centennial Week at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, which will be held on 29 October to 2 November with a regimental ball the evening of the 2nd. For more information about the Centennial, go to sock.mil forward slash SWIC, that's sock.mil forward slash SWCS, or go to Facebook at facebook.com forward slash JFK Center and School. Ryan, yeah. what would you say about leadership and the personnel aspect of uh, your interviews and what you gathered? Yeah, I, I think it matters at all levels, you know, tactically, operationally, and strategically. You know, most um, civil affairs personnel really see it at the tactical level. And over the, oh, this is where a lot of the evolution has happened. And frankly, doctrine is not very helpful because in the Africa region, you know, over time, civil affairs uh, has developed a better understanding of the country team model that we were talking about before and how civil affairs can contribute. Some of that really involves leading from behind and being 
a little patient with, uh, you know, for example, USAID uh, has the ability, our, our mission directors uh, have the ability to help make decisions about where civil affairs funded projects, you know, should take place and, um, you know, to ensure that they, they match with some of our longer term development diplomatic objectives. That's not satisfying to somebody who is used to being sort of in charge of the battle space. But over time, it makes for better relationships, and it requires a certain amount of leadership. It also um, th- that's also really important in dealing with NGOs, because as I said, you know, there are, they have a different perspective and philosophy, and some of them have some real issues with working directly with the military. And so, to understand kind of and respect those boundaries is is really important. The, the doctrine that civil affairs has, actually, uh, and, I, and I read a lot of it when I was up at Carlisle, unfortunately doesn't provide a lot of practical guidance for this. You know, it's very, it's still very focused on military governance and on combat support roles and not so much on operating in a state-to-state environment where you have two bosses. One is, you know, one is your commander and the other one is the, is the ambassador. Right. But, but and on that's that, actually on that the more level, common scenario, I would say. I mean, you would know better than me. Certainly in the Africa region, that is certainly true. Um, just talking a little bit more, though, about this, you know, operationally ambassadors in terms of leadership have been incredibly important in managing country teams to encourage civil military co- cooperation. And, um, you know, the, the sort of idea of, you know, we're one team and with one mission. And so where, particularly where you have senior defense officials and defense attaches that are, that are plugged in and are willing to serve as a resource for civil affairs teams, that's really useful. Um, but there's another aspect of this too, which is unique to Africa, I think. Maybe South Common's a bit different. I mean, it's, it's about, uh, similar, but almost all the other ones are different, which is that strategically coming from AFRICOM across a succession of combat commanders, the message has been clear. AFRICOM exists to support its partners and do its work by, with, and through other actors. And so on the one hand, it's, that's useful because it grounds civil affairs teams' overall strategic purpose around relationship building. But it also creates confusion because civil affairs doctrine sort of says you only do civil affairs activities where it, make, where it meets a military objective. But what if the military objective is supporting the civilians? Yeah. You know, so it, it creates this this bizarre kind of, you know, bizarre world to try to sort of figure out what is the strategic value of what it is that you're doing. And I think, um, you know, that has been a real source of confusion, not only for civil affairs folks, but for the people that they work with as well. Okay. In my view, it, it does help that we have civil affairs forces which are aligned geographically. So yeah. the Marine Corps, they have civil affairs groups. Uh, for the Army, the active, there are, there's each of the battalions on the 95th Brigade uh, that are regionally aligned. And the reserve side, we have the civil affairs commands. So yeah. from the interviews, did you get a sense that it's generally working to advance U.S. interests in AFRICOM? They have regionally aligned forces who are sort of dedicated to the languages, should be understanding the culture and better prepared to hit the ground? Um, I, I think so. I think that um, there are a couple of different questions that I would ask kind of based on my research that would be important for civil affairs to think about. Um, one of them is, you know, the extent to which civil affairs can help bridge that gap between those two conversations I was talking about, between the security conversation and the sort of development diplomatic governance conversation. And I think civil affairs um, is uniquely capable of doing that. It has to answer the question, what does consolidation of gains look like when you're not in combat? You know? Yeah. And so, 
Um, and I think, you know, uh, that that's the Africa region is a really good place for civil affairs to kind of, you know, chomp on that and think about it. One area um, where that could be useful is, you know, to the extent that civil affairs can help African security forces develop or expand their own efforts to build productive and trustworthy relationships with their own populations. Because if you know anything about, you know, security in the Africa region, that is a huge challenge. You know, people run away from, you know, their security forces instead of running toward them in a crisis. Right. And so, and that's not always true. And I don't want to, you know, do, there are some African security forces that work very well, but they're the exception. I think, though, that, as I was saying before, you know, the AFRICOM area of responsibility can serve as kind of a laboratory for the civil affairs regiment to experiment with. For example, um, you know, it's a place where the internal gaps and seams in the civil affairs community, and you you run a podcast called 1CA. There's a vision, you know, a a great vision that the CA regiment will sort of be a unified whole. We all know that it's composed of a number of different, you know, subunits and tribes. Um, But in the AFRICOM region, interestingly, it's sort of working the way that it was designed to work, where special operations supporting CA goes out and, you know, is, is the tip of the spear in some really tricky areas. And then as things calm down, reserve units come in and, and sort of, you know, have a more persistent presence. And there are several countries in West Africa now where um, special operations forces are, are being replaced out by um, by reservists. And, of course, there are other considerations going on, but um, but that, but that's the way it was designed. And so there are, um, you know, between that and, like I said, the consolidation of gains and also maybe solving or looking at some of the doctrinal issues around, you know, um, what does it mean to be supporting military objectives when those objectives are to support the civilians? Like, so all kinds of great thinking, uh, you know, is possible based on the experience in the AFRICOM AOR. Right. Well, it sounds like you're the right guy to have done those interviews and you were well-placed for it. Um, you wrapped up the article by including seven recommendations. You've already talked about a few of these, but I wanted to run through them and, and see if you had any other comments to close up this discussion. Um, one was improve CA doctrine. You covered that a little bit. Second, uh, mitigate short deployments. Third, you talked about partnering with civilians on CA training. We mentioned a couple um, ideas and examples of how that could happen. Fourth, fix ODACA. Uh, maybe we could talk about what ODACA means and how CA forces access those funds. Fifth, you talk about posturing CA as a leader on regional integration. The sixth recommendation is supporting a new generation of civil military co-deployments. And finally, building a partner nation CA capabilities. So what would you say about ODACA or any of the other recommendations that you had at the end of the paper? Yeah, so ODACA stands for the Overseas Humanitarian Assistance, I'm sorry, Overseas Humanitarian Disaster Assistance and Civic Aid Authority and Funding, which is primarily used for when the USAID's Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance requests DOD's support during a humanitarian crisis. But there's there's also a, a, a piece of that funding, a small portion of that funding, that is uh, generally used for small projects that have uh, a very uh, narrow definition that are not supposed to be development projects or, or, perce- or pursued for development purposes, but are um, are intended to sort of show the goodwill of the, the U.S. military 
and for some other specific purposes. So there's already a lot of constraints around that particular authority, but um, one of the one of the pieces of feedback that was pretty universal for people who had worked with uh, ODACA funds, and this is true for both the civilian and military folks that I spoke with, is that there are all kinds of other um, inflexibilities around it in terms of if say say for example you know you've identified that a particular um, a particular village requires a health clinic or something and ODACA funds are. Uh, proposed as a way of, you know, getting the the funding that's needed for that kind of construction. Well, it ta- it, it can often take several y- years for that funding um, to be approved and then made available. So first of all, you're already talking about, you know, several different deployments that will have come and gone between the time that the request is made and the time that the money becomes available. And then secondly, obviously, you know, events on the ground may have made it no longer necessary for or 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 advisable for a health clinic to go in that particular area. Right now, as I understand it, there's very little flexibility for ODACA to be moved from one geographic location to another, for it to be moved from a health clinic to, say, a school, you know, or, um, you know, some of those very basic kinds of things. And so, and these are also very small amounts of money, generally talking about $50,000 or less. So, you know, as compared to USAID, which, uh, you know, in, in many cases is also not a paragon of like really fast kind of, you know, funding, right. it still stands out as being a really kind of clunky mechanism. And I, I did a little bit of engagement, talked a little bit of engagement with, uh, um, you know, with DSCA, the organization that's combat support agency that runs it. And, and I think that there's just there's more of a conversation that could take place about you know how that could work uh, to better serve uh, both both sides of the civil, civil military divide there. Okay. I think uh, the only other one that I would say I think we talked a little bit about um, you know the um, partner nation capabilities. Yeah. So USAID, USAID right now is trying to um, identify ways that civilians could be more um, connected. Uh, with our military colleagues in, in certain um, settings, Look, building on some of the lessons learned from Syria, actually, and from Somalia, where we've had um, some co-deployments. I think that's underway. There's always, um, we always run into some kind of uh, some roadblocks on that. I think it's working its way through the policy process on this side, and um, you know, just having some, some friendly voices on that uh, is always helpful. In terms of regional integration, I think the thing is, as I sort of alluded to before, when, you, when you're in a country team situation and the ambassador is in charge of the U.S. mission to a particular country, it's pretty cut and dry who's in charge. Um, and, but when you start talking about like Lake Chad Basin, you know, or, um, you know, Horn of Africa and others, most major security challenges are cross-border. And so, um, that's not an area actually where state and USAID, uh, specialize in sort of managing regional crisis response. I mean, we can do it, but it requires, um, sort of, uh, special, uh, and often ad hoc out of the box kind of ways, you know, of, of responding. Whereas, uh, civil affairs, uh, can often set up networks across borders that can function as kind of like a, you know, a switchboard, um, an operational kind of um, platform sometimes to, co- to connect uh, through the civil information management and some of the, you know, the linkages that are established, you know, through the various networks where they could, they could actually really facilitate communication. And that was something that, um, you know, that I was excited to learn about, uh, particularly in the Lake Chad Basin area, yeah. you know, where, where I I think there's a lot more that could be done on that. 
yeah, so that's probably uh, what I have to offer. That's wonderful. This is more evidence of how we want to have you guys on the podcast, have this connection between civil affairs and AID, state, all the other partners who are out there to learn from your perspectives. And I mean, you brought them together. This paper that you wrote, The Evolution of Civil Affairs and Interagency Partnerships in Sub-Saharan Africa, by interviewing dozens of people uh, and getting first-person accounts of what they have learned is very informative. And that's why it was recognized by the Civil Affairs Association as one of the best papers that came out of this recent round. So congratulations. Well, thank you, John. And you know, I really, I really credit and, and honor you and, and everyone in the community for what it is that you do. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of civil affairs. Thank you. Ryan McCannell of the U.S. Agency for International Development. Thank you very much for uh, being on the One Say podcast. Thanks for the invitation, John. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.